This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is God's word. we were to conduct a series of interviews with whomever we might encounter on the streets of Southeast Wisconsin and uh, ask the question, what is a born-again Christian? I'm sure we would receive a variety of responses. Some would think, oh, uh, born-again Christian, you're the, you're the emotional type. You're the kind of Christian who wants an emotional experience. You know, you, you wave your hands and you cry and you close your eyes when you sing. So born-again Christianity is for the emotional type of person. Some would say that. 
Others would say, well, born again types are, are people who have had a very broken, uh, messed up lives. You know, they need to, to get, go to these conservative churches with lots of moral structure because they've been drug addicts or they've been alcoholics and so they need moral structure in their lives. That's what born again means. And you know, if you lived a broken life, uh, you might need born again religion. Another way some would respond is when they think of the term born again is that uh, these born again types are knee jerk conservatives. Uh, morally, socially, fiscally, religiously conservative types. That's a born again type. Born again religion is for that type of person. Generally speaking, most Americans when they hear the term born again, they think of a certain type of person or born again religion is for a certain type of person. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what the new birth is, about what it means to be born again. And so far as we know, Jesus is the one who coined the term born again. This is not something Christians made up. This is not something the church invented. Jesus is the one who coined the term. So we need to get some clarity around it because misunderstanding about it abounds. And we'll do that by asking a number of questions about these verses as it pertains to the new birth. Here's what we'll look at. We'll look at who needs it, what it does, how it happens, and what it takes to get it. Four questions on these verses about the topic of the new birth. Who needs it, what it does, how it happens, and what it takes to get it. Okay? Let's dive in. Who needs it? This passage undermines uh, a lot of notions that most Americans have about what the term born again means. And uh, one of the ways it does that is simply by giving us the character Nicodemus. Who's Nicodemus? Well, John gives us a number of clues in the text that help us build a profile of this man. He's a Pharisee and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This means that Nicodemus was likely an older man. Uh, He's a scholar type with a PhD in biblical studies. He's a very morally structured man, concerned with ethics. Within the community, he would have been seen as part of the cultural elite, highly respected within the Jewish community. By no means is Nicodemus an emotional man looking for an emotional religion. Nicodemus also is not a broken type of person. He has not struggled with addiction. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't need more moral structure in his life. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody walking around the streets of Jerusalem at this time who has more moral structure in his life than Nicodemus. And Nicodemus may be a knee-jerk conservative, but Jesus is about to issue him a challenge. Jesus is about to tell this knee-jerk conservative he needs to be born again if he's going to see the kingdom of heaven. He's confronting this knee-jerk conservative. So let's be clear about this. Nicodemus is not a spiritual seeker. He's not trying to decide if he wants God in his life. The little clues that that John has given us suggest that Nicodemus thinks he's in good shape. He's He's a religious insider. Of all people, Nicodemus is not someone who needs the new birth. He's not come to Jesus to find out if he's saved or not. He's been going to church and reading the Bible his whole life. 
And Jesus tells him he needs to be born again if he wants to see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells a man who's been going to church his whole life, reading the Bible his whole life, he needs to be born again if he wants to see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is showing us that one of the prime mission fields in the world today is inside the walls of churches. The word Christian today has been hijacked. The way it's used in modern parlance no longer resembles the way in which Jesus and the apostles would have understood it. To put it bluntly, some churchgoers, many churchgoers today, think they're Christians, but they're not. Now, what about you? You identify with Nicodemus? Like Nicodemus, you've been going to church your whole life. You've been reading the Bible your whole life. But would Jesus say to you the same thing he says to Nicodemus? You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Everybody needs the new birth. Second, what it does. Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now typically we have understood that to mean something like uh, no one goes to heaven unless they're born again. Jesus' words do mean that, but they also mean much more than that. And it has to do with this little word see. In John, the Gospel of John, vision language functions as a metaphor and an analogy for knowing. Vision language in the book of John, the Gospel of John, is a, is a metaphor and an analogy for spiritual perception. Craig Keener in his commentary on John says, one cannot see the kingdom in the sense of understanding it until one has been born from above. So what this means is that seeing the kingdom isn't only a future reality. Jesus is not just saying no one can enter heaven at a future time unless you're born again. Jesus is also saying no one can see the kingdom now unless they're born again. The new birth is necessary to see the kingdom now. Now Jesus uses the imagery of a baby being born to get across this spiritual reality. The imagery is helpful. A baby being born affects new realities. Here's what I mean by that. Immediately after coming out of the womb, the doctor held my son Braylon in such a way that our eyes met for the first time. When he came out, he did not come out screaming. He came out eyes wide open and they were moving all around, moving all around. The light above him was, was catching his attention but our eyes laid on, uh, laid, made contact with each other and my, I had two thoughts. The first thought was, oh good. He's not ugly. (laughs) He's got his mother's genes. That was my first thought. My second thought was, he's seeing for the first time. He's seeing for the first time. The birth caused him to see for the first time. This is what Jesus is getting at. 
Theologians over the centuries have observed that to cross from death to life, to be born again, means spiritual realities you couldn't sense before because they were invisible to you or inaudible to you. Spiritual realities you couldn't sense before, you can sense them now because you're given a new spiritual sense. What does the new birth do? It causes you to see, to be able to see spiritual reality. Some of you have stories like that. Like Nicodemus, you heard about God and the Bible, the kingdom of God all your life. But there came a point where you could see it. Something changed. See, the way you know you're born again or or one of the things the new birth does for you is that it causes you to see things you didn't see previously. The new birth allows you to understand things you've heard before but didn't make sense to you. The new birth allows things that you've heard in the past to, to touch your heart, to move you. John Newton, um, we know him best as the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, in a letter that he wrote, he said this, there are many who stumble in the noonday, not for want of light, but for want of eyes. There are many who stumble in the noonday, not for want of light, but for want of eyes. The new birth gives you eyes to see. It gives you new senses that allow you to perceive spiritual reality. In ministry, I have often heard people say, I don't know why I never understood this before. I've been going to church my whole life, but I never saw this before. I'd never heard this before. One pastor tells a story that's helpful. Um, He was part of a group of pastors who were um, evaluating young pastors for church planting. And uh, so he's on a committee, mostly older pastors, more experienced pastors, and and one by one they were interviewing young pastors to to, try to discern their fitness for church planting. And and, uh, one of the things they, they asked these young pastors was to tell their testimony, what their story, how did you become a Christian? And one of the things they kept hearing over and over and over again from these young pastors is that the fact that they were raised in the church, but they never heard the gospel. They were raised in the church, but they never heard the gospel. And uh, almost every pastor was saying this. And after the eighth guy came through and he left the room, the pastors on the committee started having a conversation with one another about the fact that all these young guys had attended such terrible churches. They all go to church, but they never hear the gospel. Well, at that point, one of the older pastors on this committee said, you know what, hold on there. Are we sure about that? He said, I think we better keep something in mind. And he started to tell his story. And he said that he had gone to church his whole life and he had not only grown up in the church, but he had one point started thinking about going into ministry, so he took some Bible courses. But then he was drafted and he went into the military and a chaplain led him to Christ. This chaplain showed him that you're not saved by being a good person or going to church. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And suddenly the penny dropped for him. And everything changed. And the chaplain really discipled him and invested in him. And one day, uh, he was talking with the chaplain and he said, you know, I don't know why anybody never told me about this. I don't know why anybody ever told me about the gospel. And what I really don't understand is why Martin Luther didn't understand the gospel. And the chaplain responded, he said, Martin Luther didn't understand the gospel? What makes you say that? 
And, and the young man, this is, remember, this is the older pastor relaying his story. This, this young man says, well, I, I took a course and I read Martin Luther's book on Galatians and there was no gospel in it. Side note, the gospel's all over the pages of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. That's for another time. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so the, the chaplain said, uh, you know what, now that you've been born again, why don't you go back to that book and reread it? So he went back to the book. And he's the kind of guy who uh, highlights and underlines things. He came back to the chaplain and he said, almost on every page, I was underlining and highlighting things. The gospel was all over the place. And this now older minister concluded his story this way. He turned to this group of pastors and he said, right now, there are young men and women growing up in my church under my preaching and they're not hearing the gospel. Because you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. To paraphrase Newton, many don't hear the gospel not for want of gospel but for want of ears. What does the new birth do? Gives you ears to hear the gospel and eyes to see the kingdom. Third, how it happens. Theologians throughout the centuries have made a distinction between what we do, which is repentance and faith, we turn and believe, we turn away from sin, we turn to God in faith, that's what we do. They make a distinction between what we do and what God does, which is the new birth. So there's a sense in which if somebody says, how can I be born again? Technically, the right biblical answer is there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. It's in the text. Chapter three, verse eight, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's not really under your control. The new birth is something that God causes to happen. This is consistent with the imagery of born again. That little word again implies there was a birth before this one, which is your physical birth. Think about your first birth, your physical birth. Was that your idea? Did you have any control over it? Before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, did you sit down with him to weigh the pros and cons of your potential existence? Dad, have you thought through my could-be existence? Are you sure you want to live through the sleepless nights of me screaming and diaper changes and teething and terrible twos, adolescence, learning to drive, dating? Dad, have you calculated what tuition costs will be when I go off to college? If you're sure about this, I give you my blessing. Put some Dean Martin on the hi-fi, dim the lights, and go enjoy my mommy. <laughs> Is that how it worked? No. You got swept up into your first birth. You got swept up into your first birth. In the delivery room, where you were born, in your delivery room, where you were born, how much work did you do? None. In the delivery room where you were born, you did none of the work. A baby contributes nothing to his or her birth. A baby isn't born by his or her works. 
See, the imagery is rich. It's deep. You're not born again by your works. You're born again by somebody's works because somebody is doing an awful lot of work in that, in that room for a baby to be born. Dads, how many of you were able to watch your children being born? How many of you were able to watch? How much work were you doing? I know. I know. I know. We weren't. But there was somebody in that room who was doing a lot of work. And there was somebody in that room who was in a fair amount of pain. One of the reasons we don't completely understand the metaphor and the implications of it is because we live in a time of hospitals and anesthesia and epidurals. Go back in time to the, when there were no hospitals. There were no epidurals. Every child that's being born in the world is being born through the pain and suffering of somebody else, the mother, at the risk of her life and in many cases, the cost of her life. Just read the history books. How many women lost their lives giving birth to another life? When we're born, when we're born again, who's doing the work? In John 16, verse 21, Jesus makes somewhat enigmatic statement, but when you place that verse within the context of the whole book, it's remarkable. John 16, verse 21, this is what Jesus says. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. If you're a student of the book of John, you know the word hour is overwhelmingly a reference to Jesus' death. It's a technical word in the book of John. Hour is a reference to his death. So what is Jesus saying? He's identifying with a woman in labor. He's saying, I'm like a woman in labor. Jesus is saying, you will be born again. Not just at the risk of my life, but at the cost of my life. And I will have such joy from your life coming from my death. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We're born again, not through anything we do, but through the labor and the death of Jesus. So there's a sense in which if somebody says, how can I be born again? Technically, the right biblical answer is there's nothing you can do. But still, if one of you were to come up to me after the service and say, how can I be born again? Here's what I would say. It's the final point. What does it take to get the new birth? How can I be born again? Jesus answers the question in verses 14 and 15. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. It appears obscure, but once again, Jesus is demonstrating that even the Old Testament is about him. What, what is this, all this business about Moses lifting up the snake in the, in the desert? And why is Jesus saying that's something he's going to do and something we need to believe in? Well, it's a reference to a scene in Numbers 21. The Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. The people of God had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea through a miraculous work of God. They were now journeying through the wilderness. The whole ordeal has been arduous for them, but the people compound their pain by developing a nasty habit of complaining. 
The people of Israel speak against God. They speak against Moses about the situation with their food and their wander and their water and they're wandering around the wilderness. And God sends poisonous snakes which bite the people and they die as a result. In response to this, they repent. Moses intercedes for the people. And God tells, the Mo, and God tells Moses to build a bronze snake, mount it up on a pole high at the center of the camp so that when they're bitten, they look at it and are cured. That's the passage Jesus is referring to in his comments to Nicodemus. So picture this with me. Let's travel back in time to this camp. Numbers 21. In the wilderness, people writhing on the ground, swollen arms, swollen legs. You next to your tent, me next to mine. Some of our neighbors have died already and we know that death is not too far away for us. And someone comes to you and someone comes to me and says, Moses has, has lifted up a pole. He's put a pole at the center of the camp and there's a bronze snake on it. And people who look at it, who look at that snake seem to be recovering. And Moses says the recovery will be complete. Now come with me, this person says, and let's go look at that snake. Would you have gone? The sight of that snake on a pole, what would that have been like for you? I think the image on that pole must have been repulsive. I've lost friends, I've lost loved ones because of what that thing has done to them. I think it'd be repulsive. And in our natural sinful state, so is the gospel. Jesus compares himself to this serpent. Jesus will be raised up on a pole, becoming a curse, becoming a curse, taking upon himself the curse that plagues all of humanity. But Jesus is saying that as you gaze upon him on the cross, You're reminded of your pain. You're reminded of the curse that hangs over you. There's a twinge of bitterness, but as you fixate, something remarkable happens. Your pain becomes joy. You're given new life. Desperation gives way to hope. What does it take to get the new birth? You need to feel the pain of the curse. You need to experience desperation. You need to realize you're snake-bitten, And self-treatment won't save you. Following Jesus' teachings and living a moral life has no power to cure you. In that moment with sin's venom coursing through your veins, you need a savior. You need to come to the place where you acknowledge you need someone outside yourself to heal you, not instruct you. And Jesus is saying, that someone is me hanging on a cross for you, sucking the venom out of you and ingesting it himself. The purpose of Jesus' death is to give life. And the prerequisite for the new birth is simply faith in the crucified Jesus. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will live. You want to be born again? In desperation, look to the crucified Jesus and live. Look and live. There's an epitaph on a particular gravestone at St. Mary's Church, Everton, Bedfordshire, England. Ironically, I didn't know about this, but I drove past this church several years ago. Um, Bedford is just west of Cambridge, and uh, there's a gravestone there, epitaph. The pastor there, John Barrage, died, and the famous uh, preacher, Charles Simeon, came and did his funeral in the churchyard there at St. Mary's Church, and the following is on his gravestone. You can still read it today. It says, Here lies the earthly remains of John Barrage, late vicar of Everton, pastor. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. I was born in sin February 1716, remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730, lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754, was admitted to Everton Vicarage, the pastorate, 1755, fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756, fell asleep in Christ, January 22nd, 1793. Reader, art thou born again? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for the Nicodemus in this room. They came this morning, they didn't believe the new birth is something they needed. I pray that you would give them eyes to see the kingdom for the first time. That you would open their senses to spiritual realities previously unseen. In desperation, that they would turn to you and look and live. Jesus, thank you for your labor on our behalf. You gave us life, not at the risk of your life, but at the cost of your life. Inflame our hearts with praise to you that overflows through our voices and into our daily lives. There's nothing else for us to do but to respond to your grace and love by honoring you with everything we have. We make much of you now. In your name we pray. Amen.